Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi. And welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. This episode features Dawn Davis, the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine. We will take your questions, as always. That's at 833-FOOD-POD, 833-366-3763. We'll offer you some very cool recipes, and we'll have more this week on Food. I want to talk about recipes on the podcast for a second. I'm trying to do these without giving specific quantities, not because I don't believe in precise recipes. I've done thousands of them, but because we're trying to find a way to do audio recipes that make sense. And I think that everybody who's destined to become a, a good cook stops measuring precisely, maybe for baking, but not so much for cooking. So the idea is take some of this, add some of that, cooking the way you might envision your grandmother to have cooked. And I think that it is ultimately the way to cook, to say, here's an interesting combination of seasonings, here's, here's the main part of your dish, here's the cooking technique, you've done this enough so that you probably have seen the pattern and can do it without a half a teaspoon of this, one clove of garlic, etc. You know what some garlic means, you know what some oil means. If you've done any cooking at all, you've begun to see the similarities among recipes. So here we go. 
Both of today's recipes feature basil because it's here. And that first whiff of non-supermarket basil, that is just a splendid thing. One of them also features kale. We'll get to that. The first is a mixed vegetable soup. And I really recommend that before you even tackle this, you make some pesto or at least chop up a lot of basil. Put some olive oil in a big skillet. How many recipes start like that? Turn the heat to medium high and add some chopped onion, some garlic, uh, maybe some broccoli, a chopped carrot, a celery stalk. This is just a variety of aromatic vegetables. Cook this over that medium high heat, stirring almost constantly until everything begins to soften. So that's five minutes or so. Add a few tablespoons of tomato paste, say half of one of those little cans. And stir that again, cooking until the tomato paste is integrated into all the vegetables. Then add some chopped tomatoes. Maybe you can get good fresh ones at this point, but if you can't, canned are fine also. And four or five cups of water or stock or tomato juice or a combination, along with that chopped basil or some pesto and some salt and pepper, of course. Bring that to a boil or reduce to a simmer. You can add some more vegetables at that point if you like, some chopped kale, lacinato kale might be good, and then continue cooking that until the greens wilt. Serve that with crusty bread and a spoonful of that pesto on top. Really great. My guest this week is Dawn Davis, who is the relatively new editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine, which as I'm sure everyone knows, has gone through some turmoil. As you'll hear during my interview with her, Ms. Davis began her career in international relations and worked as an investment banker before gaining a scholarship for an independent study in Nigeria. When she came back to the States, and this is a great story, she moved to New York and began a career in publishing. She worked at the New Press, Vintage Books, HarperCollins, and Simon & Schuster, where she started her own imprint, 37 Inc., which focused on marginalized voices. She has published a number of successful books, highly successful books. Edward Jones's Pulitzer Prize-winning The Known World, Chris Gardner's The Pursuit of Happiness, Will Haygood's The Butler, Issa Rae's The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. In 2019, poets and writers named her Editor of the Year. And now, my interview with Dawn Davis. Oh, hi, Mark Goodman. Hi. You got your start for at least a couple of years in investment banking, and then you did an independent study of some sort in Nigeria, and then decided to change your career path and came back to New York. And my understanding is that's when you started in publishing. So I just want to get a sense of what that experience was like, how long you were in Nigeria for, what you were doing there, why you wanted to change why publishing, after banking, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I am from Los Angeles. I'm an only child, and I used to read all the time. You know, visits to the library were pretty regular and frequent and beloved. My mom would go in one direction, I would go in the other, and we had this time where we would meet again. And so I always loved, and Los Angeles is really kind of, at the time that I was growing up, it was Hollywood it was the defense industry, Boeing and, you know, uh, whatnot, but there wasn't a publishing industry to speak of. And so 
it never occurred to me that I could be a book publisher. But what I did know after an early trip to New York, where I came with some friends from high school, we stayed at an aunt's house on the Upper West Side. We went to the Diana Ross concert, got rained on, we got mugged on the subway, came back and it was like, I have to live in that city. And to be honest, the only way I knew to get there at the time were these investment banks that were hiring, you know, 50 students right out of undergraduate from all backgrounds, liberal arts, finance, to work on these analyst programs. And so I knew that that was a path to New York and that kind of got me here. I would take these courses. I would take cooking courses. So I would leave these intense programs where you were expected to stay until 10 o'clock at night, take a break, come back, work till midnight. And I literally one day said to my you know, project manager that I will be back. I will finish the project, but I am going to go take a cooking class, which I think to them was just, you know, how unambitious can you be? You know, you, why don't you just wave the flag and say that you've all but given up? And so I always had this love of cooking. I used to buy cookbooks, many of them your cookbooks, and read them for fun, work really hard. And then when it ended, everyone would either go to law school or business school. And I just didn't think that that was my path. And someone suggested I apply for a Rotary Scholarship. And I did. I wrote an essay about why I wanted to study in Nigeria, which had birthed so many great artists and still continues to. But Wole Shoyinka, so many kind of prominent writers that emerged from the 60s, Chinua Achebe, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went there to study. And it was fascinating and riveting. By the time I got there, there was a you know a bit of civil unrest and political unrest. So the program that I ultimately did was self-designed. I would go into the library. So we looped back to the library and just, you know, take a book off the shelf and read it because at the time the teachers were on strike, there wasn't enough paper, you know, there weren't books. So so I did a self self-imposed study and came back. But one of the things that had happened while I was working on banking is we would go out to dinner and I developed a love of, you know, cuisine and different kinds of cuisine, uh, risotto and fish and, you know, kinds of things that I wouldn't necessarily have had growing up, but worked for a nonprofit. So was, you know, earning a third of the salary, a fourth of the salary and had to learn to cook (laughs) in order to enjoy access to those kinds of foods that I had developed a taste for. I was in Nigeria for about six months. It was supposed to be an academic year, but because of this, the unrest, it started late. So I was, in, I was there for about six months, pre-internet, by the way. So uh, it was quite a journey. <laughs> when you came back and you decided to try publishing, what did that look like? Do I have the order of this right, right? So six months in Nigeria, I came back for a wedding. My best friend got married in uh, Seattle. So I came back, went to the wedding and, you know, it's total serendipity. I sat next to a publisher and I thought you got paid, you get paid to read, you know, I've been reading my entire life and I, it just never occurred to me. And then also serendipitously, I sat next to someone, you know, maybe even after a play, we all went out to dinner and someone told me about Andre Schifrin who had run Pantheon, an imprint of Random House for years and was just starting a publishing house called The New Press, uh, which really was an amazing press, so ahead of its time. It published The New Jim Crow, most famously. Um, But I was Andre's assistant, literally. But it was a startup, so I got to do a little bit of everything. I got to 
be the liaison between production, be the liaison between publicity. I signed up books very early on. So it was fantastic. So, so that was a beginning of a publishing career. I did publish one book called Recipe of Memory, which was shortlisted for, you know, the IACP and um, the Julia Child Award. It was the James Beard Award. It was just fantastic, beautiful experience. And even wrote a book about food and chefs at some point, all of my friends, regardless of what they were doing and what they were studying, dreamt of owning a restaurant one day and like, let's pull our money and let's save our money. And, you know, they were French and they were Southern and they were this and they were that. We were going to do all these different kinds of cuisines. And I thought, you know what, guys, I bet this is so much harder than it looks because I think the Food Network was just in bloom then and everything was kind of over romanticized and made it to look so romantic and easy and beautiful. And so I started interviewing chefs just to see what it was really like. And that led to a book called, if you can stand the heat. So food's always been this kind of through line to some extent in my life. Yeah. Clearly you were quite serious if you were doing that. It was fun. It was fun. I I then had one friend in the middle of working on that book who said, you know, if you're going to talk to people, you have to talk to this guy named Tony Bourdain. At the time he's working at the Ed Sullivan, the restaurant was called, uh, I believe it was called the Sullivan because it was in the Ed Sullivan theater. And so I called him and he said, well, you can interview me, but you can't just talk about it. You have to do it. So I would work for him on Friday nights, you know, after my, my real job. And it was fun. It was a great experience. And it gave me Definitely a window into my own self. And I realized I did not want to own a restaurant. <laughs> it was fun to go out and eat and enjoy the food, enjoy the effort of the professionals, enjoy the theater of dining out. But it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue. I got disabused of that notion early on also. And all it takes is going and working in a restaurant for a little bit. And you see, well, maybe this isn't for me. Moving to the present, I want to read something that you said when you started at Bon Appetit, and this is a quote. I see food at the epicenter of all we do. Food is connected to community and culture, economics and family. Decisions about what we eat and with whom, who produces our food and how, influences almost every aspect of our lives. Needless to say, I was thrilled to see that perspective coming from someone in publishing, someone running Bon Appetit, which is obviously one of our most influential food magazines. And it's the kind of thing I've been saying, I mean, not to take credit, but but I'm obviously allied, well allied with that statement. So can you tell me a little about how that became sort of core to your philosophy and how you're bringing that kind of thinking into the magazine and how you'd like to see that evolve? Yeah, I, I realize you, you wrote something similar in your book, Animal, Vegetable, Junk, that food affects almost everything. I think the pandemic highlighted that for those of us who may not have been thinking along those lines, that there were questions about access. There were questions about farmers. Are they essential workers? Grocers, are they essential workers? You know, we were all trying to get food in our homes, but what about the people who were stocking the shelves and, you know, ringing up our food? So, you know, I love book publishing. I never thought that I would leave. And so for me to do so, I really had to think about this. And I thought, Actually, this is 100% about recipes and about providing a service for our readers, but we can also broaden the lens and tell stories about how the food ecosystem connects with everything. You know, I think about how we use food, you know, even that gesture when, when 
through COVID when people were losing people, we couldn't even necessarily gather. And how do we gather around food, food and the environment? We were in the beginning days of the pandemic, we were talking about how much cleaner the air was. And then I start thinking about food and the environment. It's connected to that. So I really thought I'm not stepping away from a career that I love. I'm going to use skills that I've learned in terms of storytelling to show people how food is really connected to family, history, equity, access, farming, community. And we're doing that you know, one issue at a time. And we're doing it in balance because our readers are here for the recipes. So I can't change it 100%, but I can be additive, have the same number of recipes as we've had before. But maybe as we did in May, we did an issue about food waste. And I learned a lot editing it. I thought a lot about the quantity of food that's wasted and also the people who are coming up with solutions to reduce food waste. And then we had recipes kind of broccoli stems, it turns out, have lots of nutrients and we don't necessarily have to throw them away after we use the florets. We can do something interesting and delicious and tasty. And so the team has really been working together to come up with the themes that are of interest and then always also have the recipes that are tested and that are yummy. Right. I have a kind of similar perspective. In a way, I see the recipes as a little bit of a Trojan horse. Bring people in with the recipes and then try to sneak in the information that they might not have known that they were looking for, which they need, or which I think they need. Totally. You know, you interviewed uh, Ted Danson, and he was saying something on oceans, which was riveting, and I did not know he was so connected to oceans. But, you know, he said something along the lines of, you know, you have to make it feel that they're connected to what you're saying, that it's personal. And at the same time, it has to be palatable. You know, I was trying to tie in the, the, the fires out west, But I don't know that you can have pictures of destruction and then also have these yummy food pictures. I mean, we have the most amazing art in Pinapetit. So it's a challenge, but it's a fun one. And I think our readers are hungry for it. Pardon the pun. You know, I had this fight at the Times for several years when I was trying to say we need to write about food more seriously. And the other side of the argument was people are coming here for recipes, for restaurants, for travel, for enjoyment, for this and that. And I was like, you can't only look at food that way. It's multidimensional. And I think that our readers are hungry for that. I think they're thinking about it themselves. And I've gotten a lot of feedback of, you know, I love the sustainability issue. Wow. That was so interesting. Wow. I've learned a lot. You know, is there one reader who says, I'm just here for the recipes? Absolutely. But, but I've had a lot more of, this is great. You know, we've developed this motto at Bon Appetit. I went around I got to meet my team in a pandemic over Zoom, but we really connected. And one of the things that I tasked ourselves with doing is come up with our motto and distilling what we're about. And I had everyone write a couple of sentences. And one of the things that when I put it all together is like, come for the recipes and stay for the ideas. You know, Chris Morocco, the director of our test kitchen, worked so hard at coming up with diverse recipes in terms of skill level, in terms of ingredients, in terms of you know, vegetarian, meat, everything. So we definitely are the experts on the recipes, but we can also talk about other things. So you've said, I think you said you don't want to change what's working. What do you think is working? And what what do you think is not working that you want to make work better? Well, we're reintroducing travel. We had to put that on pause during the pandemic, but people, I think our travel works because it's travel through the lens of food. And I know a lot of us really can't conceive of a, of a trip without 
thinking about the food that we'll consume while we're there. I think our restaurant coverage is working and will get even better because I think the pandemic taught us how much we miss restaurants, how much we might've taken them for granted. I think we can be more inclusive, not only in terms of culture, which we really are. The magazine, even before I got there, had made the pivot and it, it's focusing on diversity, but also in diversity of the kinds of people we consider chefs and food experts. You know, it doesn't have to be the narrow lens. We talked about in our March issue, people that work. I met this woman who's a fully trained chef, but she wants to work at a community kitchen. She works at a church kitchen and her food is amazing. I've worked with her. I've volunteered with her. It's so delicious. I mean, the hardest part about volunteering is not standing on your feet for hours, you know, feeding 200. It's not trying to eat while I'm cooking with her because it smells so good. You know, her motto is I wouldn't serve anything to this community that I wouldn't put on my own table. So, you know, we did a person of interest about a queer butcher. Being a butcher is not necessarily an industry that you would equate with that. So we talked about what it was like for him. So yeah, I think broadening the lens of who we consider experts and who we bring into the pages and the kind of food that we cover, I think is, is, what we are constantly improving upon. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. 
That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no insulation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? a tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. What do you think of food media in general these days? Where do you think it's going? What do you think is working? You know, it's interesting. Food media right now is really asking a lot of questions, really focused on being inclusive. It's rigorous. You know, I worked in book publishing. I published the book about the Washingtons and we expected to come under a lot of fire and we came under, you know, less fire than if you, you know, mislabel a recipe. And I understand why there's a lot of passion. There's not a lot of room for who gets to be in these magazines Um, And so when you get it wrong, it matters. So I feel like it's this period will make us better. It's a tough time, but an interesting time and an important time. You have to go through this to get better. Well, in a way, the ability to look, to cast a wider net 
really is an opportunity for people in food. It's not as if, oh, here's your punishment. You have to write about Indonesian cuisine. You have to write about the history of black cuisine in the United States. You have to write about immigrant cuisine in in Southern Arizona or what. That's not punishment. That's like broadening the palate and making things better. I mean, especially in food, part of it maybe feels like a little reparations-y or it might feel that way, but really it's just expansion of opportunity. It's great. It also provides fantastic content. I mean, you look at our May issue and our sustainability issue. We went to all kinds of communities, got all kinds of recipes. So we did Fat Choy. It has vegan Chinese, which is amazing. We did Chef Brian Yazzie, who does a wonderful salmon with tomatillo sauce, which is amazing. So I think we also have different perspectives makes for a more interesting recipe index. You know, it's really great. And we'll always have Mediterranean food, which I love, but but we can also have cuisines represented from all over the world and stories represented from all over the world. One of the things that I want to focus on in the magazine that I have done is that there's stories and storytelling connected to food, and we can share those recipes that are connected to stories. So in our, what is it, our June-July issue, Kwame Alexander, the poet, tells this great story about teaching his daughter how to make the fried chicken that his mother made. And through various iterations, he finally got it right. And so it's a story about family and about recipes connecting generations, but it also yielded a fantastic fried chicken recipe that, you know, based on comments, lovers are liking, readers are liking. Beth Indujan did a story about beef stroganoff and being made to feel, you know, it was fancy because she would go over, you know, uh, as an immigrant, she would go over to her friend's houses and they would have this fancy meal. And then once cooking it herself, realized that it's, you know, egg noodles and beef and that she could make it and put her own twist on it. So I feel like there's a story element, uh, storytelling element to the magazine that we're bringing as well, that will bring diversity of perspectives and also from that diversity of ingredients and recipes, which has really been fun to watch. I remember when I was first started writing about food, which was really the 80s, it, w- it was really so French that even Italian food at that point was a little bit offbeat. And to cook Asian food, first of all, if you wanted to cook it at home, you had to drive all over town to get ingredients. It was crazy. But second of all, if you published that stuff, people thought, well, that's really strange. What are you doing? You're People couldn't imagine making sushi at home, for example, or couldn't imagine what it took to make a tortilla from scratch. I mean, none of that kind of stuff was in the conversation. And now, you know, I think we've talked enough about Italian food. It doesn't mean that there's that it's not great. It's great. And it doesn't mean there's not stuff to discover. I'm sure there is, but there's so much else. So I think the tendencies are really terrific. You're right. There's access to ingredients more now than before, but there's still ingredients that are hard to find. And so as editors, we balance that, you know, we know this is authentic. We know it's delicious. How can we make it accessible for the home cook? We're going to start a food market on our website eventually so that you can buy 
the ingredients that might be difficult. So we have a watermelon snap pea salad that's on the cover of the June, July issue. Um, and it calls for black vinegar, which is not an ingredient that's easy to find per se. We do provide a substitute for the home cook, but it would also be nice for you to be able to get it right as you're looking at the recipe as well. So that's the editorial challenge and the fun to be diverse, to be inclusive, and to also realize that we are talking about the home cook. You know, we're providing a service for the home cook who wants to feed their family something different. As a home cook myself, I don't want to always make the same thing. I want to try new recipes. I want to try things that I think will have a 90% hit rate that will please everyone in my family. So I'm not making pasta, you know, marinara for the one kid who doesn't want to try the the new recipe that I'm making. And so we're always thinking about the home cook. In fact, I started a new column called, it's a newsletter called You've Got Time for That. And in that, I look at all of the archives for Epicurious and Bon Appetit and look for recipes that have a big payoff, a big wow, but don't have a lot of effort in terms of Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you did this cookbook where you have kind of easy vegan and then the wow moment. So I'm looking for the wow moment with the easy effort. (laughs) It's a fun column to write because I do comb the archives and I cook a lot while doing it and experiment. My husband's been enjoying that, that research. So great to have an excuse to cook, like to call cook work, cooking work. I've just always loved that. You mentioned Epicurious, which I know you you oversee also, and it would be delinquent of me if I didn't ask about Epicurious as your decision, I guess, to decide not to publish beef recipes anymore. So can you talk a little bit about how that came about and what you're thinking and how that's going? Yeah. So the discussion around that predated me, actually. Maggie Hoffman, who is the digital director, and David Tamerican, who is the former digital director, really had been kind of living their values and were not publishing beef recipes before the announcement for about a year before the announcement. And it is just how they envisioned we should be living. As you know, and I know some of your guests have discussed before, there's a lot of emissions connected with agriculture. If we want to be serious about how we treat the environment, you have to consider this. You have to at least be informed about it and make decisions. And so they wanted just to provide more recipes that focus on vegetables. They do have meat. It is not totally meatless, but absolutely they were living their values. When I came on board, they you know, asked if they could continue with that program and it seemed right for Epicurious. And the traffic around that, around their site has not diminished. People are looking. It's how people are living as well. And even on Bon Appetit, we have vegetarians and vegans on staff and we make sure our pages give everyone something. You know, you will find something in the pages of Bon Appetit, even if you're vegan, Um, lots of tofu, um, lots of really tasty vegetarian recipes. But for Epicurious, it was just that 15% of greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock. 61% of those can be traced back to beef. And so they just said, you know, we're going to publish our values. I think that's really great. I thought that was a fabulous decision. And it's not like the world needs more beef recipes. Exactly. And it's interesting because now in a lot of recipes and a lot of restaurants, it's interesting because now a lot of restaurants are following suit, you know, the 11 Madison announcement, even I just referenced um, Fat Choy, which is in our May issue, decided to go 
vegan, not because they're anti-meat, but because they were thinking about the environment. By focusing, whatever you focus on, you can do a sort of better job of exploring. If you're going to say, I'm going to do everything in food, then you're never going to get to a place where you're doing real depth. But if you say, I'm exploring veganism, it's an interesting way to say, okay, I'm really looking carefully at vegetables. I'm really looking carefully at plants. And I think that you know a lot of restaurants have been and magazines, a lot of work we've done has been very general. Like, we're going to do everything for everybody. But in a way, if you narrow things down, you can do a better job on what you are doing because we all have limited resources and limited time and energy and so on. I think that's right. And then it, it really challenges them to come up with really tasty recipes that use, you know, vegetables. And, you know, again, it's not on Epicurious, you will still find meat recipes, poultry recipes. It was specifically about beef. It feels like the magazine is more outward looking, less navel gazing, sort of less about what's cool and more about what's important, what you should know. And it, But it also, at the same time, the inclusiveness, the diversity makes it feel broader and somehow gentler or kinder. So that's all me just saying that. The question for you is, how do you see the soul of Bon Appetit? What do you think it ought to be? Where is it going to go? Well, I love your assessment of it. I want to get that written up on a plaque. We have so much expertise in our staff. And so I want to share that expertise in a way that feels accessible. I've been getting a lot of comments saying, I always read the recipes, but now I'm reading the articles. It has a lot of heart. That meant a lot to me. Again, I go back to how we use food. You know, it's how we welcome people. It's how we express gratitude and it's how we flirt. And so there should be all of that in the magazine. It should be a place um, where you get the expertise from the test kitchen, but also have stories that move you um, and that show you how food is connected to community, to the planet, to um, each other. It should be fun also. I mean, we should bring you, who are the experts? We should bring you, you know, recipes that you can make that night for dinner or Sunday dinner, but we should also bring you um, beautiful pictures, beautiful energy, people who we think are the next wave. And we should bring you food that you already know, like the pasta, but also maybe food that, you know, uh, steak with the pineapple chow. Have you ever had pineapple chow? Maybe you want to try it. Like we should be a place for the food curious. Bon Appetit's always been the high circulation food magazine. And when Condé Nast made the decision to close Gourmet, whatever it was, 12 years ago, maybe even 14 at this point, there were people who were disappointed, me among them, because Gourmet was considered a more serious magazine with equally good recipes, whereas Bon Appetit was seen as kind of a recipe factory. Really good recipes, but that's what you got. You know, you bought an issue, you got a hundred recipes, which was like a ridiculous amount. No one can cook a hundred recipes in a month, but your test kitchen could. But now in a way you have more responsibility, you have a bigger role. There is no there is no gourmet. There is no accepted sort of serious leader in big food magazines the way there was then. So the fact that you're doing more than recipes, the fact that you do have messages, the fact that you're talking about sustainability, inclusiveness, diversity, blah, 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 is really, really great. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, as a publisher, I, I have a Rolodex of amazing writers 
and thinkers. And David Remnick of The New Yorker said, one thing you'll find is everyone wants to write about food. And it has been true that there are very few people that we turn to who, you know, say no. They may say, I'm tied up right now. I'd love to do it. Let's plan for next year. But so I have access to all of these thinkers. I have access to all of these really great writers. So why not have them deliberate on the way food is connected to different parts of of society and culture, or to tell stories around, we have another column called All on the Table about these emotional moments that happen at the table. I talked about it earlier. And so to have them write a story that is universal, you know, that, that you can relate to as a reader, but also, of course, because we're Bon Appetit, we have a recipe attached, but I feel it's a way, like you said, the Trojan horse, to bring in writers and thinkers so we can really see how food is connected to everything. And it's been really, really fun. And I'm just starting. I'm just myself thinking about who can tell what story, who should tell what story, what's missing, you know, who else is doing what that's going to take me time. I'm doing what I was advised to do, which is tricky. On the one hand, I'm listening, but on the other hand, I'm trying to put my stamp on it. I had a lot of fun with the April issue, which was the 1971 issue, how that year you know, I asked the question if that year changed everything. It was uh, Chez Panisse started in 1971, which to your point made us look outside of French food, but it was also Starbucks, which changed the way we mass consumption of coffee. Uh, It was the quarter pounder, which, you know, is all about the environment. It was also cup of noodles. So that was invented in 1971, which, and, and the Cuisinart, which allowed the home cook to, be better, more efficient. So really it's about this kind of cultural moment that we were in. So the challenge has been keep the recipes, make sure we are still known for our recipes, but find ways that I can show this will also be a magazine about culture at the same time. And so I'm learning. This is really, really, really cool. Thanks for everything. It was a really great conversation. And will do right by you and hope to meet you at some point in the near future. Thank you for the time. And I do hope to uh, see you. I think we have a few friends in common, so I suspect we will meet in person one day. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. There's more basil in our second recipe. This is chicken and spicy basil coconut sauce, which you can make as spicy as you like or not. Take some chicken cutlets, one per person, and sprinkle them with a mixture of ground coriander, ground cinnamon, some chili powder, some salt, and then sear them in a pan with a couple of tablespoons of olive oil. One minute per side, pretty high heat. Take them out of the pan. If the pan's dry, add a little bit more oil. And cook some sliced red onion, tablespoon or so of minced garlic, and chili to taste. I would use at least one, maybe two Thai chilies, small chilies, fresh or dried, minced or ground up. Cook that all for three or four minutes, just until the garlic and onion soften. Then return the chicken to the pan with some coconut milk, a little fish sauce, nam pla, and a few tablespoons of chopped basil. Cook until the coconut milk starts to bubble, then simmer and cook just until the chicken is done. This is like five minutes. Serve the chicken and the sauce over rice with fresh lime wedges, garnished with more basil. You could also use some cilantro or some mint or all three, and maybe a tiny, tiny drizzle more of fish sauce.
Okay, it's time for some questions. As always, you can ask your questions by calling 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. Hi, this is Lynn from New York, and I'd like to know, why is the lacinato kale so much better than curly kale? So, lacinato kale, dinosaur kale, black kale, calvalo nero is better. And why is it better? I don't know why it's better. Why is one tomato better than another better? It is a better variety. It's less bitter. It's more tender, partly because it has thinner stems. Most people like it more. So I don't know why. I just know that it's true. Hi, my name is Christina Moore. I'm calling in with a question about what the best way to cook a steak is if you don't have a grill and if you're worried about smoke filling up your entire small apartment. We tried to cast iron, but it really does get very smoky. This is a really good question from Christina and honestly one that I continue to struggle with to this day. I think that I am currently in possession of the world's most sensitive smoke detector. And the thing that I miss most in my life is my old crappy smoke detector that had the battery housed in this little push open door on the bottom side that I could just undo with a broom handle every time I wanted to cook something smoky so it wouldn't go off. But anyway, that is a a story of love and loss for another time. But I will say this, if you want a steak with a really great crust, which you definitely do, then there's going to be some amount of smoke. There's just no avoiding it. So really, this is less about eliminating the smoke than about figuring out some ways to mitigate it. So the first thing I'll say is acknowledge that there'll be a little smoke, open any doors that you can, windows, turn on a fan, turn on a hood, get the air moving around. That's step number one. Second thing, if you're going to use a little oil to coat the steaks or to coat the pan, pick something with a high smoke point. So grapeseed oil, peanut oil, safflower oil, something like that. The other thing that I like to do is to use a pan that is not too, too much bigger than the steak that I'm cooking. Because honestly, the thing that often creates the most smoke is just a naked pan that is ripping on top of a high burner with nothing on it. So if you can minimize the empty space in your pan around the steak, that will help. And then the last thing I'll say is there are plenty of people who swear that the best method of cooking a steak, regardless of whether you're concerned about smoke or not, is to basically reverse sear it. And so that means starting with a thick steak, something an inch and a half, two inches thick, putting it on a little rack in a sheet pan in a low oven, 200 degrees, 225, 175 for maybe a half an hour or 45 minutes until it comes mostly up to temperature. Then you take that steak out, you get a cast iron skillet really, really hot with a little bit of oil in it, and then you sear the steak as quickly as possible on both sides, maybe a minute on each. And again, that will smoke a little bit, um, but not for nearly as long as cooking the steak in the pan to begin with. So those are a few options, hopefully good ones. Christina, try that out and see what you think. Thanks. You know, I was thinking about food magazines, naturally. I started working at Cook's Magazine, the predecessor of Cook's Illustrated, in 1987. And at the time, there were, I believe, four, I can't remember whether it was four or five food magazines, Gourmet, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, there may have been one other I'm not thinking of, and Cook's. We were sort of the little cousin. Those magazines plus... I don't know, 100 or 500 or 1,000 newspapers were the outlets for food writers in those days. The newspapers, were, including the New York Times, were all local. Nothing was national. The food magazines were very hard to break into for young writers. Now there are probably countless magazines, 
and literally countless websites, blogs, podcasts, and so on. Finding a niche is more difficult than it's ever been. Bon Appetit had an established niche. It's looking for a new one. I think Dawn Davis is a great leader for that magazine, and I'm really interested to see what happens. I want to thank you to the wonderful and accomplished Dawn Davis for coming on the show today. The August issue of Bon Appetit is on newsstands, if there is such a thing as a newsstand, July 13th. And you can follow Dawn Davis on Instagram at Bon Appetit Dawn, and of course, bonappetit.com and epicurious.com. Epicurious, a terrific website. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week. Folks, if you like today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at BittmanProject.com or at MarkBittman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.